Code Sydney, proud sponsor of Talking Time with Lucas and Alicia have developed our amazing website, www.talkingtimepodcast.com.au. Hey, Alicia, tell us what Code Sydney do, mate. All right. Code Sydney helps those who are helping the community. So they uh, partner with charity organisations, not-for-profit groups, and they have beginner developers that will have the chance to gain practical real world experience while they're helping the community so it's pretty much a win-win scenario mate you've got to love that in our world mate when it's a win-win when uh, the community's getting a crack at something and then others are learning from the task too uh, you can't beat that mate so the support from code sydney to help us get talking time website done and just to keep us on air and to make this thing work is is much appreciated and fantastic reach out to code sydney www.code.sydney and they'll be able to check out and see all of the stuff you need for your not-for-profit or community website or social platform. Yeah, you can also get in touch with them um, via email, info at code.sydney, and you can book a 30-minute Zoom meeting to have that conversation with them to see where they can help you. So how brilliant is that? Love it. Code Sydney, you are amazing. Thanks for supporting Talking Time with Lucas and Alicia. Welcome to Talking Time with Lucas and Alicia. So it's another incredible Sunday evening. Lucas, how's your weekend been? Mate, I'm doing good. I'm doing good and I'm actually really excited. I was just doing some stuff on our on our podcast system and we have now reached 14 countries. We've now just hit a 14th wow. country, um, funnily enough, that is listening to our stuff. So there's people out there. Um, Uruguay is our latest country that we've hit into. Oh. So thank you to the, that listener in Uruguay. Please tell everyone about it. And let's get some more listeners. <laughs> that list just keeps getting bigger. Absolutely. Just like your head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And I love you too. I can't myself. Hey, um, Lucas, we have had some incredible guests so far on the series and Tonight, we have another amazing guest. Uh, so Arthur Bolkus is an incredible advocate and consultant for all things criminology, um, lived experience and a passion in the field. Uh, Arthur has been working with at-risk youth and prisoners, runs a men's group, um, spoken internationally, is a speaker, writer and actor, and is currently writing a couple of books. Now, I hope I've included everything in there and I haven't missed anything. Um, welcome to the show, Arthur. Pleasure to be here with you, yeah. So, so that was a bit of a mouthful for me. It just kept going. Have I missed anything? <laughs> uh, it wasn't as long as some people's intros. <laughs> you didn't say I'm a good bloke. You should have said Oh, bloke. that's how we were going to sum this episode up. Great bloke, hey? <laughs> All right. Good. That's enough. That's enough. Hey, Arthur, we, um, we don't, we, we profess to not own anyone's lived experiences here, but the large majority of our listeners across the world are or have people who have lived experience in um, in incarceration. Can you give us a little bit of the Arthur Balkas story? How did you get to doing all the stuff that Alicia just talked about then? And, and how are you what you are today, my friend? Okay, I'll keep it as condensed as I can because I've, I've written a book about it um, because so many people over the years, they have a common question. How did you end up in prison? 
You see, mm. I'm, a, I'm a little bit different, uh, my background, although there are some commonalities between me and most people who end up in prison. And I, I won't go in, and it's got to do with upbringing, family, you know, the sorts of issues, uh, dysfunction, to use that terrible word. Anyway, in my case, uh, I was a bit different because when I got arrested for three-armed robberies on TABs, which are places where people go and gamble on the horses and the races and all that, um, I was in the fourth year of an arts law degree at Melbourne University. Wow. So um, uh, uh, notwithstanding that, uh, I, I kind of started acting out, if you like, when I was a kid. Uh, I didn't wake up one morning and decide I'm going to go and do a robbery on a, on a TAB. It was a process that evolved over time. And, and you get into habits, and I got into mine as a very young fella when, when my uh, family became welfare recipients when I was six. We became poor. I started stealing. Um, and unlike a lot of other people, for me, it progressed. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the adrenaline rush of stealing, of planning it, and then getting rewarded for, for the kind of crime, if you like. So uh, at uni in my fourth year, um, I, I had a lot of issues. I started messing around with drugs. Uh, and one thing led to another, and I, I lost my, uh, what was called in those days, my Oz study allowance, which was a government support. And um, I was suddenly desperate for money, didn't know where to turn. So... In a way, I kind of did another uh, kind of stealing, but it was at a much higher level, right? And I got away with it. And back in those days, it was pretty easy. There weren't the security surveillance systems like today. And, and after that first one, that was the end. I mean, it was just a question then, are you, are you going to do one or are you going to do 31? Um, fortunately, I got caught... Um, after three successful robberies and one attempted armed robbery, because I definitely would have kept going. And um, in the process of getting caught, I nearly killed a police officer with his own gun because I had an imitation gun. I didn't want to hurt anyone. I just wanted the money. And I nearly got killed too after a police chase and they were firing at me. And, you know, it could have been the end of my life at 21. So at that point, I entered what we call the criminal justice system. And I learned straight up that if you want to get justice, you've got to have money. If you want to buy the best lawyer, you've got to have a lot of money. True that. True <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, long story short, I got a big sentence, um, went through a drug rehab clinic, went to the Supreme Court, got a big sentence um, and ended up uh, effectively doing five and a half years in prison. Um, I won't talk about that now. Maybe we can discuss aspects of that. But cut to release. Over 35 years ago, I've been out of, out of prison. I got out of prison. Um, and cutting that story very short, I've had two failed marriages in the process. Um, however, I've managed to sort of redeem my life through applying the lessons that I learned the hard way through all the mistakes I made and um, uh, using that knowledge and that experience to invest in a degree called um, criminology. I did a postgraduate degree at the age of 40 
and um, the rest is history. I've worked in the field ever since then. Yeah. So I, I recently saw I recently saw a piece of work that you did with with a previous guest on on the show with uh, Diana Johns, and you talked about oh, yes. liminality. And you talked mm-hmm. about the idea of liminality and about the idea of coming home and trying to find your identity. Can you give us a little bit mm-hmm. of a feel as to, you know, for the listeners outside, the listeners that are hearing it, that might be just coming home or, or have family just about to come home. Give us a little bit about what liminality means in layman's terms. Well, liminality is being kind of a bit like in a sandwich, you're kind of caught between two places uh, from where you've come and where you're supposed to be going, you're kind of stuck in the middle and you're not sure whether you're in one world or in the other world. And, uh, you know, I sometimes say a lot of uh, people coming out of prison do the splits <laughs> and the further, the further apart their legs or their life becomes, the more precarious it is. And, and so for, for too many people, who have tried to get out and make it in the straight world, and many of them have never really known the straight world yet, it's extremely difficult. So when the pressure is really on and they need to get their balance in order to survive, they step back into the world that they know best, that they're familiar with, and that's crime, usually drugs and imprisonment. Um, and I think all of us go through that process. I think you can have been in prison for one week or yeah. 20 years. You're going to experience some sort of liminality because the minute you step out of the prison, you're kind of like a marked person, right? And and that stigma, you do carry it. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I, I could talk about this for hours, but I, I, I do presentations in schools to legal studies students. And one of the things I talk to them about is the, I call it the transcendent leap that someone coming out of that dark world is expected to make to fit into the middle class kind of world of Australia. Because most people, when they talk about rehabilitation, what they're really saying is we want you, criminal offender, to be punished and to be rehabilitated. And what that means is we want you to become like us. Yep. And the question I ask is, how the blazes is someone who's never lived in your world meant to do that without help? And the converse of that is, if I took that middle-class Australian, Australian and dropped them into the world that the ex-prisoner comes from, um, how would they survive? And, and so um, it's very easy to say, stay kind of caught in that place where you're unsure of so many things, where you've got to unlearn all the negative things you've learned in a lifetime and certainly in prison, and then you've got to learn all these new things. So you need assistance to, to step through that process. Yeah. Hey, Arthur, we seem to hear a lot about that requirement for support um, to help with reintegration into society. But what about at the start of it all, looking at at-risk youth? Is there a way we can... 
um, look at our education system so that we can help, you know, the, these risks, um, the youth start making better decisions so they can still get that adrenaline rush, like you spoke about, um, you know, but in a healthier way so that they're still, you know, getting that reward um, for an activity, but, you know, they're not then leading their life down a path where they're touching the criminal justice system. Yeah, look, uh there's many ways I could answer that, but I'll just what comes to my mind. Um, a bunch of years ago here in Victoria, um, Jesuit Social Services did some research and they discovered that 6% of all Victorian prisoners come from 2% um, uh, of postcodes, basically, right? Mm -hmm. so, so most offenders come from certain geographic parts of any city any major city, and it'd be the same, you know, in your city. And I often say, if we know, if we've identified that little boys in particular, because they predominate, don't they, in yep. prisons, yep. if we know that, that they're at risk in those suburbs, that they're likely, first of all, um, to have a, a family that's not working. Secondly, they're likely to drop out of school way too early, and they're likely to drop into the youth justice system, into trouble, and graduate from there to prison and they could spend the next 10 or 20 years of their lives caught up in that web and it is a web it's very hard to get out of it so to me the older i get the more i'm about prevention and you know for three years while i was doing my degree i worked in the youth justice system and it really opened my eyes because i didn't go through it but i would hear stories in prison from all these other guys about how i went to this institution and that institution as a kid and here i am and it helped me to see that, you know, we, we're a really carceral society. We lock up far too many people here in Australia. Instead of trying to divert them away, instead of trying to salvage their lives. And I really believe if I was um, in charge of the prison system here in Victoria, I would make uh, education compulsory. Certainly, mm -hmm. I'd try to keep kids in school in the community and I don't think we do that well enough. They're called the bad kids, the you know the failures. They're the ones that we uh, uh, expel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, label even sometimes unintentionally. Mm -hmm. uh, but in prisons, where so much is mandated that you have to do, I'd make education compulsory, and and um, I'd I'd sort of adapt what that means for the individual. So it might mean a PhD for one prisoner. It might mean learning to read and write for another. Yeah. Might be a trade skill for someone else. But I think that that is a sorely neglected area. Um, again, I can talk a lot about that. Years ago, I was involved with an organisation when I came out of prison called IFEPS, International Forum of Education and Penal Systems. I don't know if it still exists, but I felt so passionately about the importance of education for particularly prisoners that I was involved in that um, group for, for a number of years with an academic who actually befriended me and supported me and helped other prisoners that I referred to him. So, so he stepped in and helped them to get an education which can transform lives. Yeah. So for our listeners that haven't been touched by um, the, the criminal justice system, how does education prevent recidivism? How does that help them integrate into society after um, or post-release? Well, 
I think one thing it does, it helps an inmate to create a social circle of support. I always talk about a network of support. And, and, and of course, look, the first priority is, is that you want to change. I mean, you can't do this with someone who, who wants to be a crim, right? But for those who want to change, they need a network of support. And part of that might be education of some form. So take me, for example. Uh, I went to uni. Uni embraced me with open arms. It wasn't close to me. Oh, you're an ex-crim. You've got a record, which is where I was getting everywhere else. Mm -hmm. Universities, um, fortunately, are enlightened enough to appreciate that someone like me is really worthy of being in their institution. In fact, not only is it good for me, it's actually really good for them. Because when I did a postgraduate degree, I tutored, and I was able to impart my knowledge and my experience from not only a theoretical perspective, but from a practical one. So I illustrated everything I ever said with stories and they couldn't get enough. And I think- I see Luke is sitting there just, you know, agreeing yeah, course, with you, nodding away, this is his jam. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so that's the first thing, the social support you get, the sense of self-esteem that you get. But the other really important thing is this brain. You know, I once said to a guy that I visited, who was doing roughly the sentence I was at the same age, right? So he's a young fella. And, and he, he got into the weights because he was a drug addict and he was quite sick. And as I visited him over the years, I kind of gave him some advice and I said, you're looking really good. And then I said, you know what else I think you should do in that place where you live called prison? He said, what? He said, there's an education centre in there, mate. Why don't you go and check it out? And he looked at me and he said, do you think I'm dumb? I said, no, on the contrary, mate, you're really smart. But then I said to him, what happens to these muscles of yours that look so wonderful if you don't exercise? And he said, oh, they go soft. And I said, that's right. And the muscle between your ears is exactly the same. And he said, that's not a muscle. I said, I know, but it works the same way. <laughs> if you exercise it, it's going to get really strong. And it's going to help you to achieve things that you don't even know about. Now, again, I could illustrate this. I'll never forget, just to finish this story, I'll never forget the day I visited this guy in the old Pentridge prison, right? And it was a box visit, glass, phone. And I, I'm there before him and he walks in, you know, big body, strong body language, crooked nose from all the street fighting he's done, covered in tats, picks up the phone and he says, Balkus, listen to this. And then for the next couple of minutes, he quotes Shakespeare. Oh wow. And I'm sitting, and I'm sitting there dumbfounded. Because <laughs> this guy, every second word, part pardon the expression, was fuck or variations on it, right? Because <laughs> he had such a limited vocabulary, because he dropped out of school really young, hung around people like himself, and so his brain. He had not experienced optimally what it was capable of. And through education, he was empowered in ways that blew me away. And he went on to be one of those people I talked about that my friend assisted. He got out. He still had a year to go on a university degree. And he eventually ended up qualifying, graduating in psychology and philosophy. You know, so that's what 
the transformational effect that education can have on a person's life. It's the key to a new beginning. It really can be that. So I'm going to go back in history a little bit, and I know that this is a this is sort of you know, old world stuff for you, but there are so many principles of it that still continue to be um, effective now. You started up a, a program that that has been I actually have spoken about and talked to some of my students in some of my sessional tutoring, and it's your, your five eight program. And I know the five eight, yeah. five eight programs a long time ago, and 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 still for those that. If they remember back to when Simon Fennick was on the uh, on the show, he used the word five eight China plate," and uh, a couple That's of people right. like, "What does that mean?" So, hey, can you tell us a little bit about some of the principles of that five eight program? And I know it's a little bit back in history, Arthur, but there's some really important things in it that I still think are really important today. Yeah, look, um, just to put it into context, uh, I didn't actually start that; my ex-wife did, and that was when a guy rang my house. And I was the only person that had anything to do with him. He was doing a long sentence and uh, he had no one in the community. And I gave him permission to call my home. And one day, long story short, my wife picked up the phone. They had a conversation. She told me I should visit him more. And I said, well, listen, I'm overwhelmed. Why doesn't someone else do it? (laughs) And then she said to me, Remember that program you went and visited in, in, in Canada called um, Circles of Support and Accountability? It was a sex offender program. And she said, why don't we um, do something like that to help him? And that's how 5-8 started. And I managed it in the end and kind of helped to develop it. But what that was about, and it wasn't with sex offenders, we worked with mainstream inmates, but what that was about was getting four to six people in the community who cared about someone in prison. These people lived in the same geographic area, in in the same kind of neighbourhood. Now, they tag-teamed to visit that inmate and friendships were developed. And they tried to support that person during their sentence in whatever practical way they could. For example, the guy I'm talking about, his five-eights put the money up to pay for his education. Wow. So stuff like that. Now, when the person was released into the community, he, he lived in the same neighbourhood as his 5'8", so they were neighbours. And what they did was spend time together doing practical, ordinary things that people do. Go to the movies, have a meal, go to the footy, catch up, whatever. And once a week, we would all meet together around, usually around a meal, and we would discuss among ourselves what the issues and needs were in that person's life. And I always made sure that in every circle, as we called it, that we had, that there was one ex-prisoner. And why did I want the ex-prisoner there, do you reckon? Well, (laughs) the person might have kind of manipulated or fooled some of the others some of the time, but usually with someone who's been in prison, they'd pick it up. (laughs) Uh, and, And so over time... Um, not only was the person supported, but they were actually held accountable. Now, we never called this a program per se. We called it just doing life together. And in my experience, programs are good. They serve a purpose, both in prison and out of prison. But a program in itself can't change someone's life. Relationships do. And so 
it was kind of like learning by osmosis. When you're around good people, caring people, you learn just by being in their presence. You learn from them. And importantly, they learn from you. So it was a win-win situation. Um, when 5.8 folded, um, about four years after it started, uh, we had something like 11 circles and we were in the process of training people in Sydney to, to set up 5.8 there. And, and I thought it was a model that needed to be replicated across the country. And it's sad that it ended the way it did, uh, but it did end. And I've had many people approach me and say, have you ever thought of resurrecting that? And I've said, well, look, I'd like to be part of a group who would consider doing that, but I don't want to run it. You know, I'm past all that. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Leish. Um, <laughs> I feel like Lucas and I are going to fight over the question right now, but I always <laughs> win, so <laughs> I'll fire away. Are you able to tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now? Okay. So, look, in the last 38-odd years, I mean, from the moment I pretty much got out of prison, I stayed involved. Some people would say that was foolish. Looking back, yeah, I think I, I was overexposed too early because the truth is I needed to heal. I mean, I was affected profoundly by that experience. Um, you've got to understand we're talking a different era. It was, it was a brutal, vicious, violent era in prison history. Pentridge was one of the most notorious prisons in Australian uh, prison history. And you know, I, I kind of did my first 12 months there and, and, and I didn't know the culture. Uh, it was a netherworld. It was completely unfamiliar to me. So a lot of things happened to me um, that weren't good. And in order to respond to those things, in order to survive, as you hear people saying about prison, um, I had to learn things and think in a particular way and become a kind of person that I loathed and despised, but I did. And I fell into what I call the bottomless pit. And I'd see people further down in this hole and I'd think, shit, oh, I don't want to become like them. That was scary. Uh, but the longer I stayed in prison, the more I became that way. And it got to the stage where the person I feared most of all was me. Uh, so that's not a good way to kind of um, <laughs> come out of prison because uh, oh, I, I had um, oh, my sexuality was completely distorted, completely. And to think that I got married three months after getting out of jail. Wow. I mean, that no one stopped me, that no one pulled me up and said, no, you're not going to get married, mate. See, people didn't even understand. They didn't even understand what was going on. And, and I, I, I was floundering. I mean, I, I didn't know myself what was going on. It was, it was surreal. It really was. Um, anger. I can't begin to describe to people the anger that I felt. It was so intense. Until this day, I still struggle with anger from back then. I do. But I've learned to um, identify it. I know my triggers. I've done an enormous amount of work on myself. You know, years and years of counselling, men's groups, reading, psychological kind of stuff, talking to people, 
working with people, all of that um, empowers you in different ways. But the healing process is, is a long, drawn-out one, and I don't think you ever get over it. A friend of mine recently died, Stan McCormack. And Stan McCormack got out of prison, again, a long story short, set up this kind of halfway house back in the days where there was nothing. And that organisation today is called the Australian Community Support Organisation. Wow. And, and, it's, and it employs over 400 people in three states. And the bulk of their work is helping prisoners and ex-prisoners. He started that. Well, he, he died a few months ago. He was one of my close, he was a soulmate. And um, Stan said to me, he got out the same time I did. And he said to me one day, and I thought he was joking and I laughed. He said, I, I know what my problem is, Arthur. And I said, what is it, Stan? Because Stan was an alcoholic. And everyone knew it, but he was one of the nicest people you could possibly meet. And he said, my problems, of, I'm suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I laughed. Do you know, I thought about it for a week. And the next time I saw him, I said, you know what, Stan? I'm suffering from that too, mate. And it's true. And I think I'll kind of die with this Um the only difference being that unlike some others, I've been on the journey of healing a lot, lot longer and I'm sort of further advanced, but I'm still vulnerable. Yeah. I'm still vulnerable. I can't remember what you asked me, Alicia, whether I even answered <laughs> That's okay. Hey, back then, was there any terminology used, you know, such as post-incarceration syndrome? Was there any awareness of, of, of the um, impact after being incarcerated? incarcerated? Did I have any awareness of it? Is that yeah. what you're asking? Yeah. Um, I certainly had awareness of it. Uh, I didn't know what to do with it, though. Mm. That, that was the problem. I mean, looking back, I kind of wish there was someone that I could relate to, to talk to, to be real with. Um, when I got out of prison not too long afterwards, I ended up getting a job for this large organization um, that had just opened up a youth department and lo and behold I ended up getting the job uh, running the show I couldn't believe it I thought wow. they were crazy <laughs> I, I had an office I had a budget I had a car and in those days I had a secretary hey. and, she, and, and she used to come up to me and say have you got any work for me and I didn't know what to do with it you know what I mean like oh, secretary. What anyway the point I'm making here is um, when my story got out, I became a bit of a celebrity. And I was running around, I was booked up for six months giving talks. I mean, I'm talking not only around Melbourne and Victoria, I'm talking interstate. I even got invited overseas for a wow. few gigs. And I'll never forget often standing there talking to all these people who were hanging on every word because I'm a good storyteller, right? And I had a lot of stories. <laughs> and and yet, I'd always come to this point where I felt like saying something like this. Yeah, that was amazing, wasn't it? And here's me, <laughs> rehabilitated. But you know what? There's this other side to me, and it's freaking me out. I'm really scared. I feel so vulnerable. I don't know what to do. I'm scared that I'm going to start using drugs again and go and do something crazy. And I feel so bloody lonely, even though 
I was surrounded by people. And um, that was true. That was true. That's kind of akin to that saying, you know, you can be in a crowd and feel lonely. Uh, and it was all because I didn't have someone that I could confide in and be real with. And if you're like that for too long and you don't find a way to release the stress and the pressure, well, you can end up reverting to, to those other behaviours that got you in trouble in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, let me, um, we could we could legitimately keep talking to you all day, mate. And that's the, the God's honest truth is that, you know, not only the stories, but I think the authenticity and, and I want to thank you for your authenticity. I want to thank you for that because that's what, that's why people listen to this because it's, it's in some instances and in some places around the world, Arthur, these are taboo topics that we talk about. And yeah, this gives course. people the chance to hear, you know, loved ones that are trying to get a little bit more understanding of, of what their loved ones are going through at the moment or what they're dealing sure. with, what they're expecting before they get home. Or even, even myself, mate, is I still love doing this because this is a learning thing for me too. Like, you know, there's some of the journeys, some of the things that you talk about, you know, you still, mate, I was only in there for a blip, but you know, the blip is still, the blip still fucks you up as much as, you know, the, mm. the full blip does. So um, does. I hand on heart, appreciate you appreciate what you're doing and, and, in saying this, and, and no one else will know this, you were probably the first person I actually reached out to and spoke to when I came home. And that was, you know, what, three, four years ago. And yeah, yeah. And then just just needed to hear a voice of someone that, um, you know, and you hadn't even met me before, but I honestly felt when I spoke to you that you gave a shit and that you legitimately were interested in in seeing me be okay. And, and, and I want to thank you for that with my hand on my heart. Look, uh, Lucas... I clearly remember when you contacted me and two feelings went through me and I'm being honest with you. One was if I can help this bloke in some way, I want to do that. Why? Because I didn't just sympathize with you. I empathized. The second feeling that went through me was don't let him get too close. Why? Because my second marriage had ended a couple of years before and I was floundering, man. I was struggling and I didn't feel that I had it in me. And, and on top of that, all the years and all the people over the years, and I'm not saying I'm a, a martyr or anything, but the truth is you've got to be so careful because you can get worn down. And I was completely worn out. I didn't have much in my well to give. Yeah. Um, and, and, and getting back to what Alicia asked me before, what are you doing now? And I realised I didn't quite answer it, but I've had to take a step back. When my marriage ended, uh, I had to step back. I'm also older, mate, and I've been on this journey a long, long time, and I can't do the cold face stuff anymore. I, I, I avoid the one-on-one -on -one stuff. I, I did it for a lot of years. But here's the thing. Like you, I can't stop and I never will. I'll die advocating. Yep. I'll die trying to raise awareness because one thing I've realised is nothing's going to change in any community that has a prison system unless the public is aware of the issues, informed of the truth, because there are so many misconceptions that are bandied about by weak-ass politicians who pander to media sensationalism and all that shit. And it makes me, frankly, angry. 
Um, and the truth um, that evidence-based research shows us is not out there and people don't know it. And so what I look for opportunities to do now is garner all that experience and find ways to share it with, with, with the community. I do that in schools, talking to kids. This is my 21st year as a speaker in schools. I love kids. I love talking to kids. They're my favourite audience because they're young, they're impressionable. And, you know, if you can get to them and impart something from your life experience in a way that they realise is genuine and relevant, they listen. Absolutely. And I could tell you, again, a lot of stories to illustrate the effect of that. That gives me life. The other thing I do quickly is uh, I've written a book, as I think I mentioned, I'm at the moment trying to get it published. And in the meantime, as I wait for that to perhaps hopefully happen, I'm on my second book. And the second book is a composite, right, of my experiences, all the people I've ever worked with coming out of prison. Um, and it's this fictionalized base, based on truth account of a guy stepping out of prison after 20 years and everything that happens to him, being in that space wow. we spoke about, you know, that, wow. yeah, that's hey, when that, that comes about. up. When that comes out, when you've got it, the publish, okay, give us a yell because we'll get you back on here to launch this thing and we'll uh, we'll oh, tell absolutely. the word about it. Hey, our time is 100% up, my friend, is that we're about to, Zoom's okay. about to kick us off. When you're a voluntary, when you volunteer to do this stuff, mate, you've got to go with the uh, the free versions. So this is what we do. Right. But on behalf of Alicia and I, mate, thank you so much for, for your authenticity, your tale, your story, and just for being here and, and We'll put up your contact details for your website up on our socials so that people can reach out to you. Schools around the place that are interested in getting Arthur to speak, absolutely jump on and grab it. For anyone that's interested in catching up on what we're up to, talkingtimepodcast.com.au is the is our website. You can reach out to Alicia and I, and then we can steer you on to our other guests and go from there. Hey, um, thank you so much, Arthur. Really appreciate you, my friend. All the best to you both. Keep up your important work. Thanks, see you again sometime. Yep. Talk soon. Hey, okay. Alicia, mate, another one in the box, mate. We're uh, we're up and gone. This this series is zipping along quickly. Um, I will see oh, your beautiful beautiful. face next Sunday. <laughs> Let's do it then. See you, bud.